Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. Helping businesses navigate the pandemic, we talk to the state's largest business and industry organization, the CBIA. And Pfizer in Groton gives local leaders insight into their contribution on the COVID vaccine. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. It appears in the state we're seeing light at the end of the COVID-19 pandemic tunnel, and May 19th saw a loosening of many COVID restrictions across the state for individuals as well as businesses. During the last 14 months, we've seen many businesses close or adapt to the COVID conditions, and in the background has been the CBIA, the state's largest business and industry association. I caught up with the CBIA's president and CEO, Chris DePentima, to ask how they assisted the state's businesses and where we go moving forward. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Brian, for having me. It's great to be with you. So for some of the people out there who may or may not have heard of the CBIA, explain to us exactly what your organization is about and what it does. CBIA is the acronym for the Connecticut Business and Industry Association. We're about a 207-year-old organization. We are originally the state chamber here in Connecticut and the state manufacturing association. And those two organizations came together to form the CBIA. And today we're Connecticut's largest uh, business association. We have uh, nearly 5,000 members across the state of Connecticut and a variety of industries, pretty much every industry sector you can think of employing about 400,000 employees. And we're one, actually one of the largest business associations in the United States. So little Connecticut always punching above its, its weight and uh, CBIA does so as well. And our mission is to advocate on behalf of the business community. So what we do is we argue for policies that will make businesses more competitive, lower the cost of doing business in Connecticut so the, those businesses can thrive, they can create jobs. And as a result, individuals can thrive here in Connecticut with job opportunities, personal income growth opportunities, real estate growth opportunities. And we really enjoy having a seat at the table when it comes to policy as well as products. We offer products to help businesses lower their costs. And that ranges from health insurance and auto insurance to bundling energy, workers' comp, membership discounts, and also bring businesses and their business leaders together through our various programs and networking opportunities. So we're a fairly diverse organization. We even have an education foundation and a manufacturing consulting firm. Uh, the education foundation is called Ready CT, and the manufacturing consulting firm is called Constep. So we've got a lot going on here. Now, of course, when COVID hit 14 months ago, the world closed down, Connecticut closed down, everything closed down. Your doors were sort of closed, as it were, but you were still there for your members. What were some of the things that they were desperately, I'm sure, asking of you to help them out with? It's been such a range of emotions and questions over the last 14 months, but you're right, we were definitely the go-to resource for businesses and individuals. So many questions. Back in the early days in March and April, as, as everything got closed down, it was, what businesses are allowed to stay open? What do we have to do in our businesses if we are allowed to stay open? How much do we clean? What kind of social distancing needs to be in place? 
how do I get personal protective equipment when there were such shortages back then? And CBIA and our affiliate concepts that I mentioned uh, were actually kind of intermediaries of state giving us some personal protective equipment to distribute to the business community, whether it masked originally and face shields and then even thermometers. And then as the state reopened in the spring, uh, late, late spring, I should say, in summer and early fall, as our numbers got better, there was a lot of questions about the reopening itself. Okay, what am I allowed to do? What restrictions can I slow down on? Can I employ travel out of state? If you remember, there's a lot of questions around traveling into and out of the state and do employees need to be tested? Do they need to quarantine? And then as we got into the winter, the numbers went back up and we started to roll back and also the vaccine rollout happened and businesses were still in the middle of the vaccine rollout because they were supposed to administer their employees lists and upload them to the Department of Public Health. There were so many questions around that, Brian. And of course, now the questions are, okay, what restrictions are still left? Uh, can I re still require indoor mask wearing, even though the indoor mask wearing has going on, gone away? So we still get a lot of questions and, and we're happy to be able to answer all those questions because of our relationship with government and business community. Were you surprised at the way that businesses did sort of pivot during those 14 months? Because like we said, everything closed down, but you know, some businesses took that opportunity to actually sort of like retire. But of course, many of them said, well, no, I, you know, I still need to carry on business. So were you surprised at all at how things did sort of change and, and what members actually did to obviously try and keep the, the cash flowing? Yeah, I wasn't surprised at the innovation itself and the level of it. I was surprised at the speed of it, Brian, both in the business community and in government, which had the tendency to be a very big ship that it's slow to move and be very agile. But we have been very agile over the last 14 months. There's been perseverance, resilience, and innovation have clearly been the definitions of what we've done in Connecticut. And, and I knew we were a very innovative state because I've been fortunate enough to run manufacturing facilities here in Connecticut, but also in Western Europe and the West Coast of the United States. And the innovation, actually the collaboration here in Connecticut is so at a, such a high level, it drives a high level of innovation and that's a testament to the incredible skilled workforce that we have here. And that was one of the main reasons that I really wanted to take the CBIA job and come back full time to Connecticut, because I knew there were tremendous opportunities here. So I wasn't surprised at the level of collaboration and innovation, but the speed, I don't think anyone could have expected that level of speed for businesses to take a month or two to completely pivot their production lines and be making PPE for the state to pivot over a weekend and say, okay, we're not going to go to and a rollout of the vaccine on an essential worker basis, we're going to keep it age-based because we've been seeing that that worked, or for the state to pivot on closing to reopening. It's been tremendous to see, and that, that speed combined with the level of innovation is something that's been really encouraging, and I'm really hoping it's something that we can continue to harness in Connecticut as we address the economic pandemic and recover and grow over the future months. Uh, I think it's something that we really should hang our hat on here in Connecticut. Just talking about manufacturing, as you're saying, you've got a good background yourself in there and lots of experience. I mean, depending on the industry you're in, say the restaurant business, I mean, to a certain degree, you know, they're probably a slightly easier path to, to pivoting. But sometimes with manufacturing, I mean, it's not easy to retool something. And like you said, to start almost making something completely different. It's not easy at all. You know, manufacturing is all about processes and equipment and people. And, and that's sometimes, you know, you need a different skill set to pivot. You need different equipment to pivot or you need different processes to pivot. In this case, you needed all three some, in some cases. So it was tremendous to see, but also our restaurant industry pivoting from indoor dining to outdoor dining when afforded the opportunity by the government. Incredible to see, something that we'll hold on to. And uh, 
And that's really, I think, how why we've been a leader in addressing the health pandemic. And I think it's why we're going to be a leader in addressing the economic pandemic. As we said, you're a huge organization. You do so much for businesses and industry here in Connecticut. So I'm guessing you were very much part of talks, you know, with the state and maybe agencies within the state over the 40 months. And I'm sure probably continuing as well as to trying to help them understand it, because often government isn't always the most agile and always the best arbiter of trying to to work out what's the rights and wrongs of things. Yeah, that's our role. We're, you know, we're here to say yes and no to legislation. Yes, it will help businesses or no, it will hurt businesses. But even more important than that, we're here to be problem solvers. We're here to say, hey, this legislation may hurt businesses, but we understand what you're trying to accomplish. So let's come up with an alternative and be that problem solver for state government, whether it's the policymakers at the Capitol, the legislators who are elected, or the administration, the governor's office itself, or the agency, the commissioners, as you mentioned. So we really enjoy having that seat at the table and, uh, and making sure we have a, a big voice with that seat, but not a voice that says yes or no to everything, but a voice that says, let's solve it together. Let's collaborate. As I said, the public-private partnership, the collaboration we've seen with the health pandemic has been second to none, and that's the public-private collaboration we need to continue in Connecticut forever and addressing how we're going to rebound uh, economically, and we've been rebounding, and, and I think we're going to see an economy that hopefully explodes. But then when we start to address the next challenge, whether it's let's avoid tax hikes, but there's other things we could do and we'll, and we'll come up with the uh, alternatives to those or the healthcare crisis and how do we lower healthcare costs, we'll be that voice at the table for, for government and representing the business community and making sure that Connecticut continues to grow for our businesses, but for our individuals as well. The question really on everyone's lips as we've seen these uh, protocols and, and these restrictions eased is obviously around vaccination and in particular businesses asking the question, can I insist that my employees be vaccinated? I mean, what's the sort of general advice that's going around on that? Yeah, businesses can certainly mandate that their employees as well as their suppliers or customers that visit their facilities be, have been vaccinated in order to enter but we've been really encouraging over the last several months more of a, of a carrot approach rather than a stick approach. Incentivize your employees, incentivize your suppliers and customers, whether that's you know monetary bonuses or just something as simple as a company lunch or a raffle or a day off. And now we've been hearing for so many months now from business leaders as well as their employees, you know, the biggest incentive would be not having to wear the mask. And now we're there. You don't have to wear your mask indoors anymore. That's the biggest incentive to get vaccinated. And we really hope people take advantage of that incentive and move the needle from 75% vaccination here in Connecticut to maybe 80 or 85% or higher. And, uh, and that will be good for all of us. That will allow us to finally fully address the health pandemic, but also recover even better economically. So, uh, so that's the incentive to get vaccinated. I hope people take advantage of it. Chris Deepentine, I'm a president and CEO of the CBI. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks for joining us on Connecticut East this week. Brian, thanks for having me on. I really look forward to the, the months and days ahead where we all continue to see each other in person and collaborate together. I think tonight we have a tremendous opportunity in front of us to lead the country economically just like we led it in the pandemic. And, and I'm, I'm really happy to see the collaboration. So great to meet you. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, brought to you by UConn Health. Here for you then, here for you now. Hello, I'm Dr. Jessica Meyer, and today I'm talking about the mental health issue of borderline personality disorder. 
Borderline personality disorder, otherwise known as BPD, is a serious mental illness that predominantly affects an individual's ability to regulate emotions and self-regulate or soothe oneself during times of stress. It may also involve behavioral dysregulation, such as impulsive or reckless behavior, self-harm or suicidal behavior, and interpersonal difficulties. It typically begins in adolescence or young adulthood. Approximately 20% of patients admitted to inpatient psychiatric hospitals have been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and approximately 10% of individuals treated at outpatient mental health facilities have BPD. While personality disorders such as BPD do have genetic, biological, or temperamental components, many individuals who suffer with BPD have often endured traumatic experiences such as physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. Not all individuals with BPD have experienced these kinds of traumatic events, but most have experienced a pervasive history of emotional invalidation of some kind. Because borderline personality disorder involves unstable moods, it can sometimes be misdiagnosed with other mental illness such as bipolar disorder. However, mood changes with BPD are much shorter than they are with bipolar disorder and can even occur within the day. In the past, BPD had been negatively stigmatized as untreatable. However, the fields of psychiatry and psychology have demonstrated that BPD is a treatable disorder. If you or someone you know is suffering from the signs or symptoms of a mental illness, then contact your doctor and speak to them about professional treatment options and how they can help you. We're staying with the COVID theme this episode, and in our next segment, we get some insight into the COVID vaccine from Pfizer right here in Groton. Pfizer holds an annual business breakfast for local leaders and businesses, and this year was no different, albeit the event was virtual. We join the breakfast as Jean Lee, Pfizer's Head of Portfolio and Project Management, explains their involvement with the COVID vaccine and the all-important clinical trials. Our phase three program, the trial included almost 45,000 participants all over the world from six countries and 150 sites across those countries, which is a staggering number. And just for context, we at Pfizer, across our entire portfolio, we generally have about 50,000 participants or subjects in our trials at any one time. So this program as one single program almost doubled the number of um, participants that we had to take care of during a time when very few people could actually travel. A really amazing feat. For our uh, submission for the emergency use authorization, we essentially submitted the data after two months of the second dose, and that constituted adequate data for the emergency use approval. For our BLA, or the Biologics Licensing Agreement with the FDA, which is imminent, that is requires and is looking at six months of data from the second dose. So once we've recruited these participants, we are watching a subset of them for additional information that we're all looking at, including um, consideration for boosters. So we've got the the subjects in our trials. Now we're monitoring a subset for many different data points. The countries that we used was obviously in in the United States. We had an amazing super center in Brazil, although we had a prior relationship with some of the investigators, the entire hospital became a research unit and they did an amazing job. 
And then other parts of the world, Argentina, South Africa, Germany, obviously, because of our partner and Turkey. The other thing that we did right from day one was really focus on a diverse study population because we knew that was something that was absolutely necessary. We got the early signals that there may be some differences in different diverse populations and in gender and in age. So great to see that we had a diverse enrollment of participants, 30% of that those 45,000 were diverse in culture and race. 46% of the participants were over the age of 55, 56 to 85. So we got a really nice diversity that has enabled us to see how our treatment and our vaccine works in different patient populations. So really important point, which we got in early and it's enabled us to go quickly. Um, I just wanted to point out some of the other staggering statistics that we clearly from my role, it is something we look at all the time. Um, a traditional vaccine development program from the first time we start administering to a subject to the time we get approval is generally around seven years. So that has been our baseline for the past. And for this particular program, it was seven months from dosing, first dosing, to the emergency use authorization. And we project it will be closer to around 12 months to get the full approval. So that is really staggering. And one would stop and question, well, how did you do this? What are the things you did differently to enable this? I think the first thing I would say is this was the number one priority for the company. And not only for our company, but for across the pharma industry and with our regulators. So something that really helped us was that great collaboration with our regulators, the FDA, and health authorities throughout the world. The meetings that we would normally wait months for, we didn't have to wait months. We got it in hours. We had conversations with the health authorities daily. There was great science, as John has already alluded to, the science from BioNTech, really fantastic. And that, that partnership, it was all as if we were one team. Our leaders at Pfizer led by example, and it filtered through through every layer. There was no hierarchy, the right people at the right time coming together for daily meetings, regardless of where you were in the globe. And our technology all worked. We are all so familiar just logging on and working remotely. Because this was a number one priority for everyone, everyone had focus and there was a 24-7 commitment. And this was really where the scale of Pfizer worked. If you were on the study team, the clinical team, there were members in different locations throughout the globe. So essentially we could work all day for somebody in the system and somebody on the team. And that was exactly what we did. A meeting in the morning, a meeting in the evening, and depending on where you were, you would check into that meeting. So a real culture of commitment, working as one team, whether you were a Pfizer contractor or colleague, and many of those colleagues sitting right here in Connecticut, logging in and doing the work. The other thing that I would say is that culture of solving problems. If there was something that got in the way of progressing to the next step, we found a way to move on and find a solution and innovate around those um, problems. Every minute mattered. We're looking at days, months, and really making sure that we were optimizing for everyone in the system because we knew the importance of solving this big problem. So a great feat as we look back, and many of you will say, so what are you going to do about it in the future? We absolutely are taking these learnings today. Everything that is repeatable, anything that is scalable, 
and anything that can be sustainable over time are the processes that we are adapting and adopting for future programs. The great progress that has been made, and we look at it all and partner with all of you in Connecticut with absolute pride because it really has been a partnership. Connecticut has done a really good job working with local government of really getting the vaccine into residents' arms. Great job for everyone, and we feel very proud to be part of that system and be able to contribute because many of the colleagues that work in our organization on these programs are living in Connecticut and really need that protection of getting their vaccination too. The other part that I would say is our leaders have really unleashed the power of our amazing people and given us the permission to look at any way to solve and innovate to solve problems. So that is important. Although we look back at what was achieved, we also look forward and in the moment to say there is still so much work to be done. So we we believe and we have disclosed this that we can deliver two and a half billion doses across the world by the end of 2021, which is an increase from our previous 1.5 billion doses that were projected. And people will say, well, why, why didn't you forecast that correctly? Well, at the time, we knew we felt comfortable we could deliver the 1.5 billion doses. But I think it's this culture that we've all got into, this mindset of it's not good enough. Continuous improvement on every step of every process along the entire supply chain. So we're on track to deliver those 3 million doses of vaccine to the U.S. government by the middle of July. And again, those are coming two weeks earlier than uh, we scheduled, not because we had the wrong forecast. It was really because we're looking at every step. We're learning. And I think the one innovation that we have seen is our GPS tracker that goes with all of our shipments, really getting that data, learning from it real time. We've also got the data from the, our landmark um, clinical trial, the vaccine study. As we collect that data, the efficacy has been superb, no serious safety concerns. And now we're up to the six months following the second dose. So we start, we're gathering all of that data. And as you all heard last week, we had the data from the 12 to 15 year olds where we have expanded our emergency use for those children that are at school, which is fantastic. We also have ongoing studies for three younger age groups, pediatrics of five to 11 year, years old, two to five year old, and then the, the real infants from six to two years. Those are all ongoing. We're collecting that data and we're really excited to see how that is emerging and coming through. So amazing work still ongoing and keeping all of us busy, regardless of where we are actually sitting at our desk or our computers. We talk about all of the great work that we're doing, but it doesn't come without a huge investment in technology and in people. And it's these people that live in all of our communities in Connecticut and then go to some go to site, some you don't see because they're in their homes working all day, but they really are working. And I think that's where our colleagues have done an amazing job in Connecticut labs for both Groton and in New Haven. And it should be noted that Pfizer, Moderna and Johnson & Johnson are all undertaking clinical trials for age groups ranging from six months up to 11 years of age currently and will no doubt be applying to the FDA in due course for emergency use of each of these vaccines for these age groups.
It's mulch season, so come and visit Green Valley Tree LLC. We have a variety of colors for all your landscaping needs. Buy as much or as little as you want, pick it up, or we can deliver to your door. Call Green Valley Tree LLC for all your mulch, plant health care, and tree service needs at 860-234-4041 or find us at 577 Boston Post Road, North Windham, Connecticut. We are family owned and fully licensed. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making headlines in the region recently. The U.S. Coast Guard Academy in New London has announced the creation of the Academy's first provost, who will serve as the chief academic officer and principal advisor to the Academy's superintendent. Former Yukon vice provost Amy Donahue will take up the position and says it will bring the Academy more in line with other higher education schools. I think it aligns the Academy more closely with the norms of higher education. And so as an elite engineering college, that's useful to make it more comprehensible to the rest of the peer and aspirant sort of institutions in the field. Donahue has served with the military before as an army officer, commanding soldiers and personnel as the officer in charge of a forward surgical team that trains staff for global deployment. In the Connecticut Examiner this week, in Old Lyme, Essex Savings Bank has accepted a cash offer for 99 Halls Road from town resident David Kelsey, putting an end to a controversial plan by Big Y Express to open a gas station and convenience store at the location. In a letter to the Inland Wetlands Commission, Big Y Express withdrew their application for the location on May 10th after questions arose regarding a vernal pool on a nearby property. Kelsey said that his offer for the 1.33-acre site was the same price offered by Big Y Express. The deal does not include 25 Neck Road, an adjoining 0.81-acre parcel that would have been included in the Big Y purchase. Although Kelsey would not commit to any specific plan for the site until new zoning regulations are in place for Halls Road, he said he might build a racquetball club with squash courts and pickleball. In the day this week, the U.S. Coast Guard Academy graduated 240 ensigns at Cadet Memorial Field on May 19th in a commencement ceremony that included an address from President Joe Biden and marked more of a return to normalcy after last year's ceremony went virtual due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Graduates were only allowed three guests each, but they were able to sit maskless in the bleachers. Among the 240 graduates, 33% are women and 35% are minority students, with seven students coming from other countries, Georgia, the Philippines and Sri Lanka. In his speech, Biden said, we need to see more women at the highest levels of command. 12 students were high school valedictorians and 91% of graduates have earned a varsity letter. The president flew into Quonset Point Air National Guard Station in North Kingstown, Rhode Island, before taking Marine One to the Coast Guard Academy, landing at 10.30am and walking onto the stage about 40 minutes later, wearing his signature aviator sunglasses. In the Norwich Bulletin this week, one thing that has been on the mind of restaurant owner Ozzy Oscam is the price of chicken. When a customer orders a plate of wings, Oscam said he's likely losing money on it, but it would be tough for him to stop selling wings, as the name of his restaurants, including one in 
Norwich is wings and pies. In a May 6th USA Today article, National Chicken Council spokesman Tom Super said there was a very tight supply but short of a shortage of chicken. Chicken producers are doing everything they can to overcome the devastating impact of Mother Nature when she inflicted the once-in-a-lifetime winter storm on Texas and nearby states, major chicken-producing regions. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, chicken slaughter was down 4% in the first quarter of 2021. In the Middletown Press this week, for realtors, pricing homes is a challenge in any year, especially when singular features make direct comparisons between properties difficult. But amid the ongoing pandemic flight by New York City residents, some agents are floating trial balloons sky-high above the Connecticut properties they are listing, with the confidence they can cut prices if needed to levels still above what homes would have sold for only a few years ago. One listing for a modern chalet on nearly 85 acres in Greenwich is going for $35 million. Another in Westport for a property listed at just over $9 million. Some homes sell for hefty premiums over their asking prices, but in setting a sky-high asking price, realtors say sellers run the risk of their property languishing through subsequent price cuts. In the Chronicle this week, and Yukon Health Executive Vice President for Health Affairs, Chief Executive Officer Andrew Aguanobi has been appointed by trustees as the interim president of the University of Connecticut. He will replace current Yukon President Thomas Katsoulis, whose last day is June 30th. And our final story today involves Connecticut East this week. We are the proud winners of a Communicator Distinction Award for a news series. And we would like to say thank you to all of our listeners for helping us along the way as we celebrate the award win. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week, where you can also listen to the show again on demand. And please like, follow and share on your social media platforms too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening.